Well, I hope you had a good Sunday afternoon. We'll be in Joshua. Of course, tonight we're continuing in our journey through the book of Joshua. Last week we were in Joshua chapter 5. And so uh, as we progress forward, we're in the uh, conquest series as we see how uh, God has led the Israelites. And so as you've been journeying with us, we're uh, coming out of the miraculous event of the Jordan River. And so as the Lord led the Israelites, they get to the Jordan River at flood stage. And as you've journeyed with us, you remember this. Uh, And so God said, not a problem, I can take care of that. And so God walled up the Jordan River. The Israelites walked across. They get across the river. And so if you'll remember last week, then Pastor Tony uh, talked about Joshua chapter 5. And uh, it seemingly is... Uh, a place in Joshua that as God is leading the Israelites that you would think, okay, now they're in the promised land and now it's an opportunity for them to, uh, to expedite or to speed up their conquest of uh, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land promised to Abraham and, so, uh, and his descendants. And so as uh, God is moving the Israelites into the promised land, Jericho is a couple of miles away. Uh, We talked about this previously, and so here's Jericho. Uh, They're a few miles away from where uh, Jericho is, and instead of now that they finally, after 40 years, get to where uh, they're supposed to go, they have uh, found themselves at the brink of reality. So here we are. uh, They have the opportunity to to gather uh, or to receive all of the inheritance of the promised land that God has given them. And God says, well, let's take a pause here, guys. Rod, do you know where the clicker is by chance? So God says, let's take a time out. Let's take a pause. And so in chapter 5, what happens is God calls them to take a time out. And so what he begins to do is he reinstitutes a couple of things. So uh, in chapter 5, thank you. in chapter 5, what God does is he takes a pause for the nation of Israel, and what he does is he reinstitutes the Passover. Now, uh, if you'll remember, as we talked about, uh, the Passover was instituted as they were leaving uh, in Exodus, the nation of Egypt, and so as they left Egypt, the firstborn of all the children uh, were slayed by the death angel, and yet the Israelites were protected from that because the houses that uh, spread the uh, blood of the lamb over the top of the doorpost, hence the Passover, they would pass over uh, the house, and so they were to celebrate that, and so they were commanded to remember that. Now, the Israelites didn't do a very good job of that, and so Joshua is reinstituting these things back into their life, and so a few chapters earlier, as they had crossed the Jordan River, we talked about how God reinstituted the memorial stones, and for them to take a stone for every tribe and to bring it onto the other side of the river to remember as they were uh, to further their conquest in the promised land that God, what God had done. And so they had only celebrated, including this Passover, as far as we can see in Scripture, only three Passovers. The first one, the next year that they were into the wilderness, 39 years pass, and then here we go, number three. And so they have the reinstitution of the Passover, and then God also reinstitutes this covenant that he has uh, with the Israelites through circumcision. And so he tells all of the guys, hey, we got we to gotta fix this. You have, all of your fathers have passed away, and you're supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to be consecrated as a nation. And so instead of going straight into battle, they take a time out, 
And God says, we got to get things right, right here, right now, before this happens. And so then Joshua is ready now to go into battle. Now, he's the commander of the Lord's army uh, of the Israelites. And so as Joshua is taking the Israelites into battle, he runs into the commander, uh, rather, of the Lord's army, which is the uh, embodiment of Jesus in the Old Testament. Remember Genesis 1, 26, uh, let us create man in our own image. So we, we see that Jesus talks about the fact that he was uh, preeminent or he was uh, from the very beginning. He always was, he is, and he always will be. And so Jesus shows up here in the Old Testament and he stands before Joshua and this is what he says. He says to Joshua, he says, I've got a, this is the Lord's plan. I've got a message. This is what you are to do. Now, Joshua, the Bible says that he bowed down and he worshiped this commander of the Lord's army, which gives us the indication that this is not just an angel because, uh, as Pastor Tony said, angels don't receive worship. Only Jesus receives worship, right? And so here, the commander of the Lord's army, or Jesus, tells Joshua, here is what you are to do. Now, Joshua was going to Jericho just like he had previously and he went to check it out, right? So he, has, he is the, uh, the commander of the Israelite army, and so his job is to make sure that they have a plan of action, that they need to know what they're doing. And as uh, you know, this Friday at 6.30, hopefully you'll be here, uh, you'll get an opportunity to hear the plan of action for the, um, the exciting church plant that's about to happen through Michael Memorial Baptist Church. And so here, this, uh, this commander goes out, Joshua, the commander of the Israelite army, and he's going to put together a plan. And he's going to have an idea, and he's going to know, okay, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to do it. And so he says, here we're going to go out, and we're going to, we're going to devise this scheme. Now, Joshua's been there before. Remember the 12 spies were sent in, and uh, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that thought they could accomplish it. And so Joshua, I'm you know, just thinking through this, Joshua's trying to come up with a strategy. But in the process of that happening, he discovers God's plan. Now, the way that he discovers that, of course, is through the fact that Jesus himself appears before him and says, here it is of what I want you to do. Here's God's plan for this mission. Now, you know, oftentimes in our life, we do pursue our own plans. We can all give testimony to that. None of us are above that, unfortunately. We all have selfish desires that creep in, and we want to accomplish something for ourselves. But in the process, what often happens for the believer is that if we are pursuing something that maybe is for ourselves and not for God, what God often does is He writes our path, and so He puts things, or He puts people, or He puts circumstances in our way to redirect us. And so what it allows for us to do is to rediscover the process or the plan that God has for our lives. It happens uh, even in situations that aren't uh, directly, you know, tied to our own agenda. Maybe just life carries us somewhere, and God just little by little just redirects the rudders of our life to ship us or to move us in the direction that He wants us to go. You know, my life uh, is certainly an example of that. It's definitely happened in yours, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, in 2012, when God uh, gave us the opportunity with my job to move down to Gulfport, Michael Memorial Baptist Church was not on the map in Matt's mind. I, I didn't know you guys existed. I didn't know this place was here. Uh, I had no idea about uh, anything related to this. And so we moved down here with my job, and, and through a course of a few events, uh, God moved us to Michael Memorial, and then here we are uh, five years later, and so I get the opportunity to serve uh, Michael Memorial. And so what God did is He took life circumstances 
the plan in his heart. A man plans his steps, right? Proverbs says, but it's the Lord who directs his path. And so God took those circumstances and he redirected those to use them to guide me to where he wanted me to go. And the same thing, if you take a time out and think about in your own life where you currently are, and you rewind a year, five years, ten years back, and you'll see the same thing in your life if you're following God. Is that what God does is he takes circumstances and he uses people and he uses events in your life to redirect you, to move you to where he wants you to be. You see, often in our life, as we pursue our own plans and discover God's plans, what we want to do is we want to substitute our plans. We often substitute our plans for God's priority. So we take our plans and, and we say, God, I know this is your priority, but I have a really good plan here. I've got a great strategy for this, and if you'll just let me use my strategy, I promise it'll work out. You remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said oftentimes what we should do is we should pray, and then we should ask God to move, and then we watch God move. But what happens oftentimes in our life is that we move, and then we pray that God would fix our move, right? That we do that. I've done that. You've done that. So we oftentimes act in the reverse order. And so we, we take the priorities of God and we substitute them and we say, God, I'm going to use my plans here. And then we'll say, you know, God, your plans are plan B. But this is not what Joshua did. Joshua was going to uh, strategize and God said, no, here is your strategy. You know, the, the problem with that is that we think that our ingenuity can be a replacement for our obedience. So, you know, we get the direction that God wants us to go. We've got 66 books that are very clearly written. Uh, I mean, if you think about Christianity, we're the only religion that has apologetics to where apologetics is the defense of the gospel or to defend the reality and the truth of what we believe. We're the only religion that has that. And so here we've got Christianity, and we're saying, God's saying, check it out, study it, prove it. Try to find something that's wrong with it. Try to discredit the resurrection. It's all right there. I did it all in public. Any questions? And so we've got this strategy that we come up with, and we think that we can come up with some new way of doing what God has already instructed us to do, which is our obedience. God's saying, no, just follow me. It's, it's very simple, just like this morning. What did Pastor Tony say? He said that the simple definition of light, does anybody remember that? Not dark, remember that? That's the definition of light. God says, look, I'm not trying to complicate things. I'm not trying to hide from you. I'm not trying to make this difficult for you. I want it to be simple. Here's what you should do. Well, God, how would I do that? Just do what I told you. What did, what did uh, Moses ask God? Well, God, who should I tell him sent me? And God said, oh, that's simple. Just tell him I am sent you. Right? God's, God said, look, I'm just making this basic for you. I'm just making this simple for you. And so we try to replace oftentimes what God tells us to do. I, we try to replace our obedience or what God tells us to do with our own new way of doing things. And so likely with Joshua, he probably remembers the strategies that Moses had employed against the Amalekites. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, it says, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of who? Joshua. Recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun or from under heaven. And so here God's saying, look, I want you to tell Joshua this. I want Joshua to know this. You know, certainly Joshua uh, had that conversation. He remembered the war strategies or the battle strategies 
that Moses had employed. And so here's this uh, new commander of the Israelite army leading them. And he thinks back to all the ways. So I, I imagine in his mind he's thinking, okay, how would Moses do this? What would Moses do? You know, the guy that was his faith father, if you will, what would Moses do in this situation? How would he strategize? How would he deploy the troops to get, uh, to get Jericho to fall? You see, a lot of times in our own lives what happens is that instead of, as the Bible said, God making his mercies new every day, that we, we just try to employ old strategies that God has already done. We just say, instead of going to get a word from God and God, what is it in this situation that you want me to do? We just say, well, here's what God told you know, my neighbor to do in this situation. Or here's what God told me to do 10 years ago in a similar situation. So I'm just going to do that. You see, Joshua looked back at those strategies and thought, well, you know, is this something maybe that I could do? Is this something that maybe we should use in the past? We can use that today? You see, what, uh, you know, the expectations that Joshua had and the expectations that most people today in the world have is that God can't do things that are, not, uh, that are beyond our comprehension or beyond our understanding. Most of what we believe that God can do in our life today is what we conjure up in our expectations. I want you to think about that. Is that not the most true thing? I mean, think most of what we believe that God can do in our world is what we conjure up in our own expectations. So we say, here's a situation that I find myself in, good, bad, or indifferent. And we say, God, here's what you could do, or here's what the outcome would be if, if, if you did something. And then that becomes our expectation. Whereas the Bible says that God can do far above what we could ever ask or imagine. But in our own minds, we box God in and we say, God, here's the only things, here's the only outcome for this situation, whether it's a a job or a situation with your family or a relational issue or financial issue. And we say, here's the only way that it could happen. And then our expectation for the result becomes our imagination. I imagine this is the only way it could end, and so we fast forward, and it's already ended that way, and God hasn't even done anything yet. So we can't limit God's work in our life by the expectations that we place upon Him. You see, anytime a believer does something that can only be accomplished by God, it causes the world to watch in disbelief. You see, that's the the element, that's the zone that you want to live in as a believer, That's the goal, that's the objective, is to live a life in such a way that the things that God does in and through your life can only be explained by an act of God. You see, God's going to call you to do things. God's going to call every person in this room, including me, to do something for the kingdom of God that is far beyond my ability. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there's none that seeks after God, no, not one. John 2.24 said that Jesus knew what was in man, and he did not entrust himself to them. The Bible says that our heart is deceitfully wicked, right, and that we can't trust him. So in and of our own mechanisms and desires and schemes, we're going to mess things up, but God's going to do something far beyond what we could ever imagine if we just let God be God. But what happens is God calls us to do things, and again, every single one of you, if you listen, God's calling you, God has called you, God is calling you, God will call you to do something to be a part of the kingdom of God, just like the church plant this morning, right? God's going to call you to step out and be a part of something that if he doesn't show up, it will fall on its face. Those are the things you want to be involved in. Right, And so God calls us to do those things. God calls us out to be a part of those things, and we are terrified. 
right? We're terrified. There was a picture that I saw this week that I put on the board here. I don't know if you can see it. God says, I have a plan for your life, and what it feels like for us is the little boy grasping the death grip onto the lady who in this picture is the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. Can you see that? I know it's small. Is that not our life? That God calls us to do something and we're on this crazy ride and we know just like the little kid in the picture that God, if I don't hang on desperately to you, I will not survive, right? That's how our life often is when we follow God. God calls us to do things that are far beyond our ability. And that's when God shows up in our life, right? And he does things that an unbelieving world could never explain, And that's when the activity of God is most prevalent. You see, God often accomplishes his work through the most unorthodox methods, as we'll see here in Joshua chapter 6. Again, whatever expectation that you've conjured up in your mind and in your heart that God would accomplish, he's probably not going to do it that way. He uses the most unorthodox methods. For instance, how will I create Heaven and earth, how will I create humanity and all that's within? I think I'll just use a word and I will speak it into existence. How will I get Moses' attention? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll use a bush that's not consumed by fire. How will I I rescue the world from all of the sin that's taken place from Genesis 5 and before? I know what I'll do. I'll get uh, Noah to build an ark because it's never rained before, but I'll ask him to build an ark that has nothing to do with rain up until this point, and he and his family will trust me and get into that ark, and they will be rescued. Who would think, right? Who's going to believe Noah that it's going to rain because it's never rained because we don't know what rain is, God. Right, and on and on and on the story, Abraham, I want you to move to a place, and when you get there, I'll tell you that's where I want you to go. And by faith, he goes, and Joshua, or Joseph goes through all the situations that he goes through, and then Genesis 50, 20, he says, whatever they meant for evil, God meant for good. And so God takes all these situations, and he says, I'm doing things that can only be explained by me. That should be the title of the book of Joshua. God doing things that can only be explained by God. And so he uses these methods that no one else imagines, no one else can uh, conceive in their own minds. You see, victory for the Israelites, as we'll see tonight, comes in the most unusual fashion and in the most unusual timing. Does God normally show up when you think he should? I mean, my goodness, right? At the last second, I remember growing up, there was a song that uh, we would sing. Uh, he's an on-time, I'm not going to sing, Rod, don't be nervous. He's an on-time God, yes, he is. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time, right? And so that's the God that we serve is not confined by time. And so here, God is, is going to uh, use this exact thing that we'll see in the most unusual fashion and the most unusual timing. But first, as we talked about in chapter 5, the hearts of the Israelites have got to get right. they got to get right before there's going to be an outpouring of God's blessing. You see, many times people in their walk with God and in their desire for God to do something, they're not willing to stand before God in, in who they are and, and just bear transparency and say, you know, Lord, this is, this is all the good, bad, and indifferent. In my, I mean, this is all of me, and it's not very good, and I've messed things up, and I've not made the right choices, but God, I want you to use me. Can you take all these dirty stains, God, and wipe them clean, 
And can you make good out of it? Can you do a Genesis 50, 20 in my life? All the things that I meant for evil for my own life, all the decisions that I made. Can you make that good? Can you turn that around and redeem that? God's saying, look, what I want you to do before there's going to be blessing in your life, you've got to stand before me and get your heart right. And so here's the Israelites in in chapter 5, and you can go back and read as God clarifies some things and says, no, boys, here's what's most important. And so we get to uh, Joshua chapter 6. God has just reinstituted the covenant of circumcision in chapter 5. He's reinstituted the observance of the Passover in chapter 5, as we just talked about. And now it's time to go to battle. Now it's time to go to battle. So we pick up in Joshua chapter 6. So follow along with me as I read in Joshua chapter 6. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. So they're a few miles from the Jordan River. Jericho and all the Canaanites, they hear about uh, the Israelites coming, and they say, there's nothing to worry about, folks. Have you seen how high the river is? There's no way Israel's coming across. And then all of a sudden, somebody's looking far out, and they say, hey, boss, we got a problem. And the Israelites are walking across the Jordan River on dry land. Now they are imminently about to take over Jericho. And so they shut the doors. In verse 2 it says, The Lord said to Joshua, so here's this conversation that the commander of the Lord's army, which is Jesus, is having with Joshua. And he says, uh, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant. And let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. Verse 9. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, verse 10, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall all shout. Now that in and of itself is a miracle if you've ever been around children. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking with them, with the rear guard walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. 
And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep for yourselves from the things uh, devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So all the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. So here's Joshua. Here's the Israelites. They've just crossed over Jordan. They've just reinstituted the covenant of circumcision. They've just celebrated the Passover And now it's time to go to war. So you can imagine that they're ready to go, right? There's this preparation that they were going to have before they went into this shout of victory. And so Joshua gets before all of the Israelites, all the men of war, and he says, all right, boys, I've got a plan. And here's what we're going to do. Now, remember, they're battle ready, okay? It's been 40 years I don't know if you've ever waited 40 years for something, but when it finally comes to fruition after 40 years, now's the time. But yet, God said, again, in the most most unorthodox fashion, well, we're going to do it a little different this time. And so in verse 2, God is telling them, the Lord's telling them, the commander of the Lord's army, Jesus, is indicating a future event that has already taken place. He says to them, I have given. So they're having, this is an indication of a future event that's taking place. They've not stepped on the battlefield yet. They're not seven days deep and walking around the city. They've not even gone to Jericho yet, and yet Jesus tells them the victory is already yours. Now, I don't know if you live your life every day in that same fashion. You see, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in me than he who lives in the world today. And so in our lives The Bible says that we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who saves us. If you've read Revelation, right, you know how all this ends. So all this conversation on the news about Syria and and all this political stuff that takes place and all the scary things that happen around the world, guess what? God's still in absolute and total control. And there's going to come a day when he shuts the lights out and all this is done. He's in absolute control of that. And just like today, he told the Israelite army, he says, listen, I've already given you victory. 
So there's already victory for the believer. Remember the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so in our walk with the Lord, we know that God has fashioned every single day of our lives. He already knows the end. As Casting Crown says, he is already there. He already knows the very end. And he knew the end of the battle for the Israelites. And so as they are going into this Jericho battle, Jesus says, it's already yours. He tells them to do a, a couple of different things. He says there's seven priests, and he, he wants to have seven trumpets on seven days, and there's the seventh day that they're to shout the victory around uh, Jericho. And so the number seven represents, of course, perfection and completion. So God created the heaven and earth and all that's within in six days, and on the seventh day, in his completed day, he rested. It was perfect. He was done. It was complete. So God is, uh, these numbers are no mistake here. God certainly cares about numbers so much to the fact that he wrote a book of the Bible called Numbers. And so God is saying here, this number seven means that it's going to be perfect. It will absolutely be complete, what he say, to utter destruction, which we'll get to in just a second. And so he says, here's, here's what I want you to do. Now, God's plan of action may have seemed foolish to the men that Joshua was talking to, but it was the perfect scheme for this battle. God knew exactly how it was going to turn out. And so I can imagine Joshua goes up and he says, all right, guys, are you ready? Now, they're probably not real happy with Joshua at this moment. Again, if you go back and read chapter 5, he asked them to do something that's a little harsh, right? Seemingly, it's, you know, we won't discuss it in here, but you should go back if you forgot. And he asked them to do something really hard, right? And so he says, I need you to do something. And so they're probably not real happy about what just happened. I'm being, you know, I'm kidding, of course. It's in jest. And so now he's like, they're, they're like, all right, are we actually going to go to war now? And Joshua says, yes. And here's how we're going to do it. I don't want you to throw any rocks. I don't want you to shoot any arrows. I don't want you to throw any stones. What I need you to do is get in a line, okay, boys? I need everybody to line up. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk around the city. And that's what we're going to do. And when you're done walking around the city, uh, verse uh, 10, I don't need you to say anything. I don't want you to talk. I just need you to, to walk around the city. And they say, okay, um, and then what are we going to do? And he says, oh, well, when you finish that, just come back, and, and then we'll, we'll go to the next step. But, but we want to fight them. Aren't we supposed to be fighting them? Remember, there's two of the tribes came over. They sent their warriors over to fight uh, the Jordan River. So, and then you have the other ten tribes that are in the promised land. So he's like, are we, are, we're going to fight though, right? Are we, we're going to battle them. Just, just, I just need you to walk around the city. So here's this plan that seems, are you sure, Joshua? I mean, you ask us to do something really difficult in chapter 5. Now here in chapter 6, what you're saying is that you just want us to walk around. We're warriors, man. We've been working out for this. We're ready for this battle. But you see, here's the problem with that is that this was God's battle. It's not the Israelites' battle. You see, this is why God calls the walls to fall, not the Israelites. Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho, contrary to the little nursery rhyme that we all learned as a kid. God did. You know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. No, he didn't. Joshua did not fight a battle at all. He walked around the city, and God caused the walls to fall. And so it's certainly inaccurate that we believe that Joshua went out and did this miraculous military defeat because he did not. 
And if you look back in your life and in my life and all the things that God did, He just graciously allowed us to be a participant in those things, and at no point were we in control. Now, we want to believe that we were because we're Americans, and, you know, we, we think that we have everything figured out, right? That's the Western culture. But this was God's battle. You see, in your life, whether, you know, whatever it is that you're fighting in your life, it's not a battle that you see face-to-face. But the Bible says, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12, says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, this all goes back to Genesis chapter 11, to where the Tower of Babel and the 72 nations chose not to worship God. And so in Genesis chapter 11, God gave them over, according to Romans, to their debased mind, Romans chapter 1. And he says, if you want to follow false gods, then get after it. You see, God's a gentleman. He's not going to make you follow him. You have a choice, which is why Joshua says in chapter 24, verse 15 of this book, choose this day who you'll serve, either the gods of the Amorites But as for me and my house, what does he say? We're going to serve the Lord. He just had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. He says, look, you can follow whoever you want, but I'm following Jesus. And the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the 72 nations, they left. They decided to follow after false gods. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God said, okay, well, I'll create my own nation through the lineage of Abraham. And here's the guy that's past 90 years old. And God says, you're going to have more kids than you can count the stars in the sky. And God not only did what he said he would do, but he went far beyond that. And here we find ourselves as the Israelites, which are all descendants of Abraham, find millions of people are following after. Joshua because of what, G, or what God promised Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. So we find this battle is not between the Israelites and the Canaanites. This battle is between people that are following after false gods and the Lord God Almighty himself. And God said, I can, I can fight this battle. And so he told him that he wanted them to sound the trumpets. You see, the trumpets were simply signifying the presence of God. On the day of your gladness, Numbers 10.10, also, and at your appointed feast and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. He says, I don't want anybody talking. I just want you to blow the trumpets, which is indicative of the presence of God. Now remember, when the Israelites were to cross the Jordan River, did God say, okay, I need the best swimmers to get up front in case this doesn't work out? No. No. He he didn't say, all right, I need the tallest people to get in the front of the line because if we get six or eight feet in and it's not working out, we we might need to turn back. No. He says what? He says, I want the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God. I want you to step into the river first because God says, I'm going before you, boys. I'm going to show you that you can follow me. I want you to get 1,000 yards behind me. Remember 10 football fields? I want you to get back there so you can see the Ark of the Covenant, that God is not afraid, that there's no one greater than our God, that I'm going to step into the river first because you can trust me. And I'm going to walk around Jericho, and I want you to walk around Jericho, and as you're walking around Jericho, I want you to blow those trumpets because those trumpets indicate that I'm right there with you, right in the middle of it. I don't want anybody talking. I don't need anybody explaining me away. I just want you to blow the trumpets because I'm right there in the middle of it. 
And we can say the same thing about our situation today. It doesn't matter where you find yourself in life. God's the author and sustainer of life. And if you're still breathing air and pulling wind into your lungs, it's because the creator of the universe granted permission for your lungs to do that. And no matter what situation that we find ourselves in, whether it's in an unorthodox fashion that God is accomplishing something in our life, we can say, God's right here in the middle. That'd be a good place to say amen. So here's this battle. God's in the middle of it. And so in essence, here's what God is saying. God is saying, lift up your heads, O gates. Remember, the gates, we'll see in a minute, the gates are shut, the walls are tall. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Man, I love that verse. When you read that in the context, that is amazing. He says, hey, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Because guess what? He's coming in. You see, this was a test of faith for Joshua. God sends Jesus to stand before Joshua. Joshua is the battle-tested commander of the Israelite army. He's got all these devices and schemes, and he knows strategies and you know, he probably could have come up with a really good idea to how to fight uh, Jericho. But yet God sends Jesus and he says, hey, here's what I want you to do. And it is the craziest thing that you could ever imagine, Joshua. We're not going to fight at all. You're just going to walk around the city. This is a test of faith for Joshua. You see, when God calls you to do something in obedience Uh, Henry Blackaby says that you come to a crisis of belief, and you answer the question in your own heart is, do I really believe what I say I believe? Did Jesus really say, go and make disciples of all nations? Did he say that? And we would, you know, we would pull up Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and we would say, yeah, Jesus said that. And then we would ask ourselves the question, do I really believe that that's what God wants me to do? Do I believe that? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, do I believe that that's what God has called me to do? See, that's what church planning is. It's saying, God, I believe that Matthew 28, 18 is true, and I'm going to obey that. I'm going to be obedient to follow after that, and I'm going to step out in faith, and I don't know how this is going to end, and I don't know what it'll look like. It's just like sharing your faith with your coworker or your neighbor or your friend, and you're saying, God, I don't know how they're going to receive it, and I don't know what you'll do in their life, but I just know that you've commanded me to go to all nations and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And then you promised me at the end of that that you were with me always, even to the end of the earth. And so, God, if that means that I'm going to step out and I'm going to do something that I don't have the answer to, but I know you've commanded me to do it in Scripture, then I'll do it. That's what faith is. The substance of things hoped for. God, I hope this works out. God, I hope this turns out the way that you want it to. But the evidence of things not seen. God, I can't see the end, and I don't know how it'll work, but I'm believing that you are Yahweh God and it will work. That's what faith is. And Joshua, God said, I want you to walk around the city. And Joshua says, I don't know how that's going to end. What if they come out and attack us? I'm sure in his mind there's lots of things that are going through his mind. And yet he says, yes, sir, I'll do it. That's what you said? I'll do it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand it, but I'll do it. This is also a test of obedience to the Israelites. Will you really follow God? 
You know, one of the things that we talk about, uh, we had a series here recently about the will of God, right? And we talked about God's sovereign will, and we talked about God's moral will. And we said that God's sovereign will is most often, and I would say probably every time, if not every single time, 99.9% of the time, discovered, God's sovereign will is discovered in the rearview mirror. And so we look back upon what God has done, and we say, that makes sense. God's sovereign will. And so God is saying, I've got a plan for the Israelites, and the plan has involved multiple years of them being involved in the wilderness and him providing the manna and leading them and their their sandals not wearing out and always being provided for. And then ultimately, here they are at the culmination of their journey. And now they've got to say, okay, will we obey at the end? You see, the Bible says in Hebrews 11.30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith they fell down, not by force. You see, Jericho, it's interesting if you study, Jericho is only about eight or nine acres big. Many of you have many more acres at your property than that. Only eight or nine acres. It didn't take but 30 minutes to march around the city. Think about that. 30 minutes. Now, the Bible says they got up early in the morning. Remember that? They got up early, and they marched around the city. Now, there were so many people that were marching around the city. It is believed, there's some people that believe that there were people who actually finished walking around the city before some people even started walking around the city. That's how many people there were. That's how small of an area this is. Eight or nine acres, not a very large area. Only about 30 minutes. So remember, verse 10, don't talk. So they get up in the morning. God commands them what to do. Joshua relays that message, and they start walking around the city. 30 minutes later, they're done. They're not talking. Remember, it's silence. They come back. Day two, I want you to do the same thing. So they get up. They start walking around the city. Now we're into day two. Now, I want you to think about this. They're doing something that is completely foreign to what they could ever have dreamed that God would do. Now, on the seventh day, on the seventh day, they marched seven times around the city. I don't know if this should be on your handout, which only took about three hours. So, on the seventh day, they marched seven times around the city, three-hour march, no talking, We'll get to that in a second. No talking. They, they had no words whatsoever. And yet here on the seventh day, they only marched about three hours. So 30 minutes on day one. So 180 minutes total. Day six. Then we got three hours on uh, day seven. So here's the Israelites marching around the city. So as we think about this, How did they have victory? I think there's some good principles here. I've been convicted and encouraged this week by what we're about to talk about. So, God, I think there's just a couple of victory, keys to victory here. So, in your own life, whatever you may be encountering, I think this will help you to get through that and get past that and and, uh, what God has uh, for you to learn through this situation. So, the first key to victory is silence. How did they accomplish that which God instructed for them to do? It was silence. Verse 10, Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. 
silence. He commanded them to be quiet, not to talk. And so for seven days, they did not talk. Have you ever gone seven days without talking? Don't talk. That's what they said. You see, silence, it really has a way of clarifying reality, doesn't it? I mean, think about, we are such an instantaneous world, and we want noise and engagement and and entertainment 24-7. When is the last time you rode in your car silently with no radio? You know, a lot of people don't do that. Most people, you know, they get in, boom, they're turning the radio on. If they're not, uh, if they're at home, they've got a TV on, or you've got a, a conversation on the cell phone, or a text, or, or whatever. We're constantly engaged. We've always got something going on that's drawing our attention, some noise that's going on. And so, as I, I mentioned, you know, this was a convicting part for me is that I just, I need to be more intentional about my silence, about just being quiet before God. I'm not bringing requests. I'm not asking God for anything. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I don't know noise. I just need to be quiet. I need to do that more. I need to be silent before God. I remember uh, several years ago, for several years, Melanie and I had the opportunity to do student ministry. And so one of the songs that we used to sing, uh, it says, uh, If I could just sit with you a while... If you could just hold me moment by moment until forever passes by. And so I remember, you know, that I was one of my favorite songs to hear because in my mind it was just me sitting at the feet of Jesus and not talking, not saying anything, just sitting. You see, in your life and in my life, the clearest point of your day is at night when everybody goes to sleep and you just laid your head on the pillow. That's when your mind has the most clarity. Nobody's talking to you. There's no expectations for you. It's just you and God. You've been in that moment before, right? Every night you close your eyes, you lay your head on the pillow. That's the clearest your day probably is for a lot of people. There's no silence in our life. We've got too much going on. And so God instructs the Israelites, I want you to be silent. On your paper, I wrote, when is the last time you sat in silence before God? You're not not talking. You're not asking. You're not praising Him. You're not saying anything, but you're just sitting there. And you're focusing your thoughts upon God. Five or ten minutes. You should try that. To sit and to meditate and just just say, God, I just want to sit right here. I want to be silent. You see, they were commanded to be silent. Here, here's the problem is they, you say, well, you know, I've got too much going on in my life. I don't have time to be silent. I've got too many responsibilities. I've got all these things happening in my life. Well, think about the Israelites, okay? So they're commanded to go and do something that seems crazy, to march around the city. So day one, I imagine that the Israelites got up. They took the instruction from Joshua, from Jesus, and they started walking around the city. Well, on day one, the Bible says that the city of Jericho was shut up. Nobody's coming in, nobody's going out. So the Israelites are walking around. Now remember, this is a lot of people out here, okay? So there's a lot of people walking around the city, and I can imagine that the Canaanites are looking over the walls of Jericho, and they're saying, hey, what are they doing out there? Can, can you see what they're doing? So they're going to one side of the city or to the other, and they're, they're looking out, and they're saying, hey, do you, can you see what they're doing? What are they saying? Can you hear anything? What do you hear? No, no, sir, all I hear is trumpets. Or are they talking? Do you hear anything? What do you see? What, what are they doing? And so they say, sir, they're marching around the city. 
Well, what are they doing next? Well, sir, they're just marching around the city. And so they say, we've got to get ready. Every man, stay at your station. Don't let the gates up. Everybody be ready. And so the Canaanites are preparing for this battle. And the, and the Israelites, what do they do? They don't say anything. They just keep walking. They walk around the city. 30 minutes later, they're done. They start to walk back to camp. Gilead, remember, right at the edge of the Jordan River. And so they finish their walk. And so I imagine the, the Canaanites are looking out and they're saying, where do they go? What do they do? And everybody stay in your position. They're certainly going to come back. And so all day, the rest of the first day, guess what? They stood at their post and they watched. And everybody's got their eyes and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Who's coming back? When's this going to happen? And then day two happens. The Bible says they get up early in the morning. The Israelites go out and they start marching around the city. And so they say, all right, boss, here they come. Here they come. They're coming. Today's going to be different. They're going to do something different. And they start walking around the city. Nobody's saying anything. You got the trumpet players in the middle, right? Nobody's saying a word. And all of a sudden they say, now, wait a minute. This is silly, guys. This is not how you fight. Are you afraid to fight me? You remember Goliath, what he yelled to David? You know, he's throwing all this slander towards the Israelites, and everybody's terrified of Goliath, and David was like, what's he saying out there? You know, he it's like it's another language to him. It doesn't even register in his mind. And so here's the Canaanites yelling all these things, I can imagine, down to the Israelites, and they're just walking. God said to walk. I'm just going to walk. I'm just going to stay in my lane. And they're yelling, hey, dummies down there, what's wrong with y'all? Y'all want to fight? Are you scared? So guess what? 30 minutes later, day two, the Israelites go back to camp. Canaanites are like, this is ridiculous. Look, tomorrow they sent an email out. Tomorrow, just don't even go to your post. These guys are chickens, right? And so nobody shows up for, uh, for their post on day three. The Israelites come out there, and there's like 12 people standing on the wall, and the Israelites just walk. Blowing their trumpets. They're just following God. They're rowing their boat, as Pastor Tony says. He said to walk. It's day three. I'm just walking. So I can imagine day four, same thing. They get up 30 minutes. They're walking around the camp. Nobody's talking. They're not saying a word. Trumpets are blowing. The Israelites, the Canaanites are looking out saying, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. These people are stupid. What in the world are they thinking? So they're thinking of all these insults, and they're probably throwing rocks at them, I can imagine, just taunting them, saying, really, guys, come on. Day five, walking around the camp. Day six, walking around the camp. Day seven comes, right? So here we are in day seven. All these insults, they've been throwing at them for five or six days. You ever been insulted for your fate? What's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with him? You know, when the world around us shouts insults, when the world hurls accusations at us, silence is the best medicine. They were commanded to be silent. All this taunting happens by the Canaanites. All these insults that are coming after them, they've been taunted. The next slide here, all these insults that are shouted at them, all these accusations that are uh, hurled against them. You're, you're not warriors. There's no way you can be uh, a warrior. You're not fighting us. If you were a real warrior, you'd be in war with us. This would be a battle. But the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, Jesus. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isn't that what Jesus did? God commanded him, got a task for you, son. 
I want you to go redeem humanity. The Bible says that he counted uh, not himself higher, but he made himself a little bit lower. Right? Remember that verse, Philippians? And here's Jesus comes down and he takes the form of a servant. Jesus is accused, the Garden of Gethsemane, we just went through this, and uh, John and Jesus is accused. Judas comes up, betrays him, Peter chops Malchus's ear off. Jesus says, hey, we're not doing it, doing it that way. He grabs Malchus's ear, puts it back on, and he willfully goes to the cross, right? All the accusations that are hurled against him, he could have called 10,000 angels, heard that song before, right? Remember the legion of angels that could have been called, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it, right? He had a mission. He was obedient. The Bible says even to the point of death on a cross. You see, the work of God will speak for itself. It needs no explanation. If you're following God and you're doing things that the world doesn't understand, your family is saying, what is wrong with you? That doesn't make any sense. This is the sixth day, and you're still walking around the city. This doesn't make any sense. You should quit. You should give up. You shouldn't do that. We just keep walking. God said to walk. I'm going to walk. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we, I was in an evangelism class. Evan, I think it was 565 or something, so I was in this evangelism class, and our, our mission, our task, our, our uh, assignment for the week uh, was that we were to share the gospel, the Roman road. You ever heard of the Roman road before? Romans 3, 23, 5, 8, 6, 23, 10, 9, 10, 13. And so uh, we're going to share the Roman road. But here is the, the caveat, okay? Students, I want you to share the Roman road. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, but God commended his love towards us where we yet sinners. Christ died for us. For the wage of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. And then uh, 10, 9, 10, 13, Whosoever call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, he was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. And so we were to go out and share that. So I quoted it in like, what, 10 seconds. But here's what we're supposed to do. Instead of me quoting that, so if I'm witnessing to Ray or whoever, instead of me quoting that, my, my, my uh, assignment for the week is to share the Roman road, but instead of me saying it, and I had it highlighted in my Bible, will you, will you read this? So our objective that week was to share the Roman road, but not to quote it or to read it to someone, but for them to read it. So I was at Wendy's in Appomattox, Virginia, and uh, I had my Bible with me. And uh, Wendy's was kind of like the spiritual zone for me. I, I was able to lead uh, a guy to the Lord at Wendy's, and so you know, you kind of got a spiritual spot. That was it for me in Appomattox. And so uh, there was a lady that worked there, and she was outside on her uh, uh, smoke break. And so I said, well, all right, God, here's a spot. Here's an opportunity because she's not going to leave till she's done with that cigarette, and this is a great opportunity for me to share the gospel. And so I go up to her, and I said, ma'am, can I share something with you? And she said, yeah. And so I just began to talk to her, and, and I said, can I share uh, a scripture with you? And she said, sure. And I said, all right. So I turned in my Bible to uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and I said, would you read this for me, please? And so she read Romans chapter 3, verse 23. I didn't quote it. She read it. 
Now, the Bible says that these, uh, Hebrews says that uh, these words will pierce to, their, the, to the dividing asunder of our soul, right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Hebrews says that, right? And it says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, uh, and to lead us into righteousness. That's Matt Davis' version. Uh, for the Lord's sake. And so here's, here's what I did is that I gave her an opportunity to read the living Word of God. I didn't read it to her. I didn't put into her mind any thoughts. I didn't give her my, uh, you know, certain Matt Davis version. And it wasn't the version of the Bible that she read. It was the Word of God that was inspiring to her. Listen to me. That's why D group, we read the Word of God. We don't read a Bible study. And I'm not saying none of them are good. I'm saying that the Word of God is what changes people's lives. And so she's standing there and she is reading the written, inspired Word of God. And she reads, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And she, for herself, I said, what does that mean, ma'am? What did you just read? And she said, well, it says that everyone is a sinner. And I said, well, yep, you're right about that. And I said, well, what does this say right here? And boom, I flipped over Romans 5 What Would you read this for me, ma'am? But God commended his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For all of sin, and while I was sinning, Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. I didn't say it. She read it, the written, inspired, holy word of God. Ma'am, what does that mean? And she says, well, Jesus loved me enough to die while I sinned. You're exactly right. Would you read this verse for me? I've only got three more. What does Romans 6, 23 say? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. She's reading these words. I'm not telling her my version or my story. I'm not changing things around. I'm not manipulating any conversation. I'm saying you read the Word of God, and you let the Word of God change you. God doesn't need you or me to defend Him. He doesn't need me to stand up and to proclaim the goodness of God. He's got trees and he's got rocks and he's got mounds that can declare his glory. He doesn't need me, but he allows me to be a part of what he does. It is the written word of God. He doesn't need a defense. Listen to me. He's not counting on you to defend him. He just wants you to participate in that. I'm about to start preaching tonight. We get into Romans. I get excited now. Listen, we don't, God doesn't need me to proclaim his goodness. I just get an opportunity to do that. He can use anything. If he can speak through a donkey in the Old Testament, listen to me, he doesn't need Matt Davis. If he can speak through a donkey, he doesn't need you, but he chooses to because he loves us because that in our sin, his love was greater than that. And he says, I want to use you. I want to declare my greatness through walls that will fall, not because you did something or because you're strong or because you've been working out or because you're worthy, but because I'm worthy. And because of that, I can make those walls fall. And through the written word of God. How did you come to know Jesus? Through the word of God. That's how you came to know Jesus Christ. The only thing that's, that is imperishable, right? That's what the word of God says. And so that's how you came to know Jesus. That's how I came to know Jesus. That's how other people come to know Jesus. It's through the word of God. It's not through a fancy message. It's not through alliteration in the message. It is through the word of God. And so at Wendy's, 
In Appomattox, Virginia, the word of God spoke to the heart of a woman who stood there and for herself, maybe even for the first time, she read the inspired written word of God. God doesn't need me to defend him. God didn't need the Israelites to say anything. This is not about them coming up with fancy words or great apologetics, which I love. It's not about them defending God. It is about God receiving the glory for what God does. And so the Israelites are standing there with all this going on, not saying a word. Exodus 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have to only be silent. So when Joshua 6.10, he says, I need you to be silent. He's doing something. So he told him, be silent. And then number two, just obey. Even if it doesn't make any sense. I need you to obey. It's not going to make any Why in the world would Pastor Rod leave Michael Memorial Baptist Church? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Why would you leave? Why would you move your family? It doesn't make any sense. But obedience, oftentimes, doesn't make any sense. You see, in Jericho, the walls were high, the Bible says. The gates were shut. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's coming out. It doesn't make any sense. You want us, you you think we're going to win God by walking around the city? This doesn't make any sense. And God says, you know, the thing that honors me the most And the thing that I most delight to honor is obedience. He says a few books later, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. I just want you to obey. You see, they were obedient to the end. I'm sure they grew weary. I'm sure they didn't fully understand their strategy. Here they're standing before this wall that's got to fall. The only way they're going in Jericho is if the wall is absent. And yet they're doing nothing for the wall to be removed. And it doesn't make any sense. Likewise, in our own lives, we face insurmountable circumstances that seem impossible and that don't make any sense. Like, for instance, why are the Canaanites being attacked? Why are they, why did God say totally and utterly destroy them? Well, I'm just going to give you a little commercial here. Pastor Tony is going to address this in the next few weeks. But in Genesis 15, 16, they came. He says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, these were the enemies of God. Remember, again, Genesis chapter 11. These were the enemies of God, and utter destruction is always the end result for those who are opposed to God. Well, what happens in eternity? I mean, just think about this. What happens in eternity? How many choices, how many places can you go in eternity? Two, right? You're either with Jesus or you're against him, right? You're either going to bow the knee or you're not. If you submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I go there you may be also, heaven. Jesus has a place where the presence of God resides, and for the believer who places their faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin that Jesus secured on the cross, you and I will get to spend an eternity in heaven with Jesus. But for those who do not bow the knee, those who do not surrender their 
will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that one day they will surrender, but it will be too late. And they will spend an eternity separated from God, which is known as hell, which is a place of what? Utter destruction. It's a place of utter destruction. And so the enemies of God always come to utter destruction. It is always the ending for those opposed to God. You see, they had a chance. Rahab chose to follow, but they chose not to. They had heard about the Israelites. Remember the conversation? I think it's in Joshua chapter 3. Everyone here is terrified. Wonder why? Because they heard of the God of the Israelites who parted the Red Sea, who parted the Jordan, who was about to part the Jordan River, and God's doing things that only God can do. And they had heard, and they had an opportunity to follow, and Rahab was the only one who said, I want to follow your God. You see, obedience of Rahab would cause her to become the mother of Boaz, who was in the lineage of Jesus himself. Matthew 1.5, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Because of her obedience, she became part of the lineage of Jesus. So the keys to victory are very simple. To be silent and to obey. Not to come up with reasoning and understanding and, you know, all explanation. The light, the definition of light is not dark. Very simple. So I want to give you some key principle takeaways here tonight. I know we're getting close to time. Number one, it is better to be silent and be considered a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. It is better to be silent and be considered a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Just be quiet. Just follow God. He doesn't need you to come up with a reasoning and explanation. He can stand for himself. Just obey. Number two, learning takes place in silence. You can't learn if you're never quiet. Remember you're in school, maybe you're a teacher here tonight. When students are taking tests, are they talking or are they supposed to be quiet? You're supposed to be quiet. When you're teaching, are, are people supposed to listen or are they supposed to talk while you're teaching? They're supposed to be quiet. Learning takes place in silence. The walls that we face in our life are not removed by force. They are removed by faith. The Israelites came upon Jericho and it had a fortified wall that separated the outside from the inside and they didn't go and tear it down brick by brick. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what caused that wall to fall. So victory then for the Israelites was defined by obedience. And it's the same for you and me. Victory is defined by obedience, not by accomplishment. Not by accomplishment. It's about obeying. I've said this for many years, that church attendance is not the substitute for spiritual growth. 
Church attendance is not the substitute for spiritual growth. You can't come to church and not obey and expect to grow. You have to apply the principles of the Word of God in your life. And so victory in your life looks like obedience. It doesn't look like church attendance or checking a box or reading through the Bible in one year, although all those things are good. It is applying what you're reading. It is applying what God is uh, massaging into your heart. Victory in your life will come only through obedience or obedience obeying what you read or hear. Last but not least, God's goal for you and for me is not to always understand. That's not His objective. It is that you trust Him. He gave them the most ridiculous war strategy ever, and they did it, and it worked. You've probably studied this verse before, the last verse on your handout. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge Him. And what happens? He will direct your path, right? So God's objective in your walk with Him is not necessarily for you to always understand. It's for you just to trust. As the song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen? Let's pray tonight. Lord, we thank you so much for the example.